0: Stars than the Oscars. The Jobcast, March 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Indy and Fiona. Hello guys. Hi Uh, Mark. In the show this time we have Dr. Miguel Perez Torres talking about radio-emitting supernovae, we find out what you can see in the Northern Hemisphere night sky with Ian Morrison, and we'll also bring you some astronomical odds and ends. Now normally we'd start with the news at this point, but due to unforeseen circumstances it's going to be a little late this month, so we are going to put it into the extra episode. And that means we're going straight on to the interview, for which Indy talked to Dr Miguel Perez-Torres about radio observations of supernovae.
1: I'm here today with Dr. Miguel Perez Torres from the Andalusian Institute of Astrophysics, uh, which is based in Granada. Miguel is currently a visiting scientist at JBCA. Hi.
2: Hi, Andy. Nice to see you.
1: So, first of all, could you tell us a bit about your research interests and and what it is you actually do?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm uh, I'm mostly interested in uh, supernovae in nearby galaxies in our local universe, and also. S- Prolific supernova factories, starburst galaxies that do produce many supernovae per year.
1: Okay, could you talk us through the basics of uh, of supernovae for our for our listeners?
2: Sure. So, supernovae represent the death of very massive stars, stars that weigh more than eight to ten solar masses, and uh, when they do explode, they produce fantastic. Explosions, their shocks do interact with the surrounding medium, and it is this interaction that produces lots of radio emission. That's what brought me to JVCA.
1: Okay, and um, what what are you using to observe these supernovas?
2: So we use uh, interferometric arrays. In particular, we use the E-Merlin and the European VLBI Network. VLBI okay. stands for long baseline interferometry. So basically it's like using several radio telescopes which are far away in a in a way that practically allows us to see very little fine details of these supernovae. So um, with eMerlin we don't really get to the point of of seeing their structure, but we we use the very fine sensitivity of the eMerlin array to detect them. Up to distances of 100 megaly years.
1: Wow. Okay. So, actually, give us a sort of kind of distance scale. Is that um, very far away for supernovae, or is it close? Or in 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 cosmic terms, I suppose.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The, that's actually called the local universe. These are nearby nearby galaxies. So, for astronomers, this is really small distances. Actually, the the problem is that the farther you go. Um, the, the less they emit. I mean, the less the less light comes to us, and it's very hard to detect them to very far distances.
1: Okay. And so, I mean, are these supernovae of, of one kind? Because there are many different types of supernovae. So what are the characteristics of these guys that you're looking at?
2: So we mainly follow um, the so-called core collapse supernovae. These come from the death of stars that are very massive, as I said, above 8 or 10 solar masses, um, because their interaction do produce a lot of... the interaction with the stellar material do produce a lot of radio emission. However, uh, actually, what brought me here at this time was not just that, also this this particular study, but um, in particular the fact that A supernovae, which are the other type, they come from... Um, they are called thermonuclear supernovae because mm-hmm. uh, one white dwarf, which is not so massive... White dwarfs do explode when they reach the so-called Chandrasekhar mass of 1.44 solar masses. Really.
1: Okay.
2: So they are much less massive, and they are not expected in principle to produce radio emission. However, there are two scenarios. In one of them, they would produce a relatively small amount of radio emission. Okay. Those two scenarios are where either we have two white dwarfs. In that case, no radio emission should be expected. Because essentially you don't have material to interact with. Right. Okay. Whereas if you have one white dwarf that explodes and uh, during the latest, uh, the last stages of its life uh, has been close to a main sequence star, like Uh the sun. Sure. So so this main sequence would have been feeding some hydrogen, some material. Then when the supernova explodes, this interaction would produce some level of radio emission. So so far hasn't been there has been no detection of uh, no re- no re- detection of radio emission from many of Type one type A supernovae. I see. Okay.
1: So the, these Type one A's are the famous uh, standard candles that you can use to measure a uh, uh, distance in the universe. Is that right?
2: Exactly, exactly. Indeed. That's the case. So it is quite kind of funny that we do use these uh, standard candles to study to make even cosmological achievements and mm-hmm. this has been as you know Nobel, Nobel Prize awarded a couple of years ago or, yeah yeah, say, yeah. Huh? <laughs> uh, and on the other hand we still don't know what makes a supernova 1A we don't know which is the scenario that really produces so it's kind of odd that we do use them as if we knew them perfectly well mm-hmm. still it's but not we, clear
1: we know very little about the actual mechanisms that that, yeah. that, that trigger these things Right. I see and um so with the, the other population, the core collapse radio population, um, how do you go about finding these things and observing them? Uh, do you have a catalog of, of supernovae that you already know of? Are you look, trying to find new ones? Um, how does it work?
2: What we do is that we, um, we have, uh, collaborators that, um, work on, uh, on the same kind of supernovae and detect them in the optical, very quickly classify them. Because they get a spectrum and mm. they know the type. I see. If it is the type of core collapse supernova, which is, you know, type one, B, C, time two. Well, I won't go into any detail here. And they alert us, and then depending on this, uh, this uh, type of specific type of core collapse supernova, we start the monitoring or not. So so far we are we are observing those that explode in the nearby 20 megaparsec, okay. 25 megaparsec, which corresponds to about. More or less, a bit less than 100 megabyte years. Okay.
1: How many of you have you got? What's the sort of sample size of, of supernovae that you've observed so far?
2: So, well, um, I, I have been granted a, a limited amount of time, of saving time, and I have to, to make the best use mm-hmm. of it. So, um, in, in a reasonable size for this year is about 10, 8 to 10
3: okay. targets.
2: So far we have, uh, uh, start, we have observations for three or four. So basically, which is corresponds to five months of observation. So I I do hope that by by the end of this uh, this call that we for which we got time with mm-hmm. Emily, mm-hmm. we'll have this ten or eight uh, supernovae observed.
1: Okay, and and so once you've got your um, once you've got your supernovae, what are the what are the science objectives behind it? What are you planning to study uh, about these things?
2: We would like to 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 study in a more systematic way how they interact with the with the surrounding medium okay. what is the kind of mass loss rate that they show These uh, supernova are expected to show mass loss rates that is the the rate of mass that they lose per year mm-hmm. something like between 1000th or less something one ten thousand one 1 over 10000 yeah. this the mass of the sun per year okay so this is a huge amount that means in 10000 years they would lose completely the mass equivalent of our sun. Yeah, okay, so they are really, really powerful. F- awful, Yeah. Okay. Powerful, yeah. So this is one of the main things. The other, the other thing is that we would like to have a, um, um, a number of supernovae observed in the radio, so we can understand, we can get what we, we call the radio luminosity function. How, how these supernovae, for example, knowing our spectra, what is the radio emission that we should expect, and basically. Feedback to what we already know from the
1: optical. Okay, so it's sort of building up a global picture of a yes. supernova in, yes. in, in various wavelengths. That's um, right. Do they emit in any other sort of uh, light, or is it just radio and optical?
2: No, well, they do also emit in essentially in all bands. So they are very strong X-ray emitters, for example. They do also emit in the in the in the infrared a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, of course in the optical. Yeah, the, the the advantage of the radio. Is that it it is delay with respect to the optical I see and it's uh, it lasts for a longer time okay so in the optical after let's say a hundred days supernovae have are so so weak so faint there is no point in following them unless you you use a huge telescope right whereas in the radio we we uh, we know that uh, because they are initially very strongly absorbed, we can delay the the observations for a few weeks or even months. And actually, some of the supernovae I'm I'm uh, observing in these supernova factories galaxies that do produce many supernovae in the nearby universe, they are very bright even five years after the explosion, which allows a very detailed study of the circumstellar interaction. This can be done at any other wavelengths.
1: I see. Um and actually yeah so coming back to these supernova factories which you, which you mentioned earlier on um what are they and and could you tell us a bit more about those because I mean I'm assuming it's it's areas where large amounts of supernovas get produced but I guess the question is why
2: Okay yeah good question so um, we we are observing a number with the email a number of uh, uh, so-called luminous infrared galaxies Okay so these are galaxies that are, are very luminous mm-hmm. in the infrared sure. obviously as in... as, the, as its name says Yeah uh, the uh, the idea is that beyond uh, behind this uh, infrared luminosity, this huge infrared luminosity, lies a lot of star forming activity, okay, and particularly mostly in the in the centers. So these luminous infrared galaxies are um, merger galaxies. So imagine a couple of galaxies that mm-hmm. they start to interact. At some point, they start to merge. Mm-hmm. This uh, this um, merging. Um, initiates a very powerful starburst. Okay. Okay. So this powerful star, when it starts, it starts to produce a lot of infrared emission because the massive stars mm-hmm. do emit a lot of ultraviolet emission, not infrared, mm-hmm. but it hits the dust that surrounds
1: the I massive see. stars, and
2: it is this dust that re-radiates at longer wavelengths, at the infrared. And when one sees one of these galaxies, which is, it has a uh, an infrared radio emission that doesn't really correspond to what you see in a normal galaxy mm-hmm. like ours, mm-hmm. then you know that there is a very powerful star-forming activity there. And mm-hmm. therefore, you know there must be a lot of supernovae.
1: But that seems a little bit counterintuitive because if supernovae happen at the end of star lifetimes, why would they be going on in, in um, a place where stars are being born con- continuously?
2: Okay, yeah. So the thing is that the um, stars, very massive stars, live very little. A massive star of, let's say, 10 or 20 solar masses, uh, let's take 20 solar masses, just after 4 to 5 million years, dies. This is very little in terms of galaxy lifetime. So Mm -hmm. our galaxy has lived for um, 5 5 billion years. That means that in in just a fraction of 1,000 of this life. All these uh, supernovae mm-hmm. are, are starting to, to pop off. And I, I see. Tell. So, actually, this this is this uh this is star forming um, this is star galaxies uh, these uh, processes last for for just a forty to hundred million years, which is even is of course not just for this is still a small fraction of the galaxy's lifetime. So, it's, at the end at the end of the day, they are telling us a story about very recent starburst activity.
1: Right, so you basically got stars sort of forming and dying all in one really intense period, and then it and then it kind of calms down after a while. Yeah. Okay, and so are you studying these um these these starburst galaxies slash supernova factories with also with e or?
2: We are saying them with E-merlin. Uh-huh. Uh, E-Merlin doesn't have the the resolution, the the angular resolution to really detect each of these single supernovae. Sometimes. It does. But in the very central part where most of the activity is happening, we do have to revert to the use of the European VLBA network. Okay. So we, we use then even higher angular resolution instruments in the radio to really detect each of these single supernovae.
1: And I'm assuming there's also, I guess, infrared observations of these because, well, they mainly emit in the infrared.
2: Yeah, Yeah. The only thing is that the infrared instruments do not have the angular resolution to to tell us anything about these particular detailed stories in the center of these galaxies. So they are very useful. They are very useful. They provide us with very good diagnostics. But certainly, they cannot beat the angular resolution provided by radio observations using interferometric arrays.
1: So the 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 very long baseline arrays is sort of the the, the microscopes that you use to get out the li- little tiny details in the middle of the galaxies.
2: Yeah, you you didn't you said it better than I did. Yes, <laughs> in fact, these these are like the microscopes we use to to really see each of these bacteria <laughs> <laughs>
1: exploding around in the middle of the
2: galaxy. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's really cool, actually. Yeah, because I mean, I, I guess if you couldn't really study this with visible uh, wavelengths, because the dust would just block everything out, wouldn't it?
2: Exactly. So optical is not feasible to start with because most essentially all the light has been absorbed even if it wasn't absorbed like for example the infrared, the angular resolution is not enough
1: okay and so again like what are the what are the underlying objectives of of studying um starless galaxies in?
2: two two main one of them uh, would be um to search for individual supernovae and test independently of the scenarios, what is the, the star formation rate by actually tracing the death of, of these massive stars. And the second is that uh, now nowadays there is a lot of astronomers uh, trying to to understand the, the star forming um, galaxies at high redshift, that is early in the universe. Okay. And basically they are assuming that there is a very well known, quotation marks, very well known, mm-hmm. radio infrared correlation. So basically they use as us, you know they they believe that when when you have a, a measurement in the in the infrared or in the radio, you can transform this into an infrared value and this from, from here, from this calibration, to know roughly the star formation. Okay. Yes. okay. So this is actually not so well known. And our our intention is actually to study in detail um, a representative sample of galaxies in the local universe in the radio, compared with the infrared observations, and either calibrate very well, very precisely this, or understand the possible biases in this. Because when we will extrapolate, all this is actually being done. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with not so much care. When we do extrapolate this to back in the early universe, any mistake here, when you can imagine, you extrapolate back to 13 billion years, you definitely may come up with very wrong numbers.
1: I see. So studying the galaxies around us is going to help us understand sort of stuff that's a lot further away. Yeah. And on a final note, I'm um, speaking of supernovae, there was uh there was one that was observed uh very recently that just appeared. Um so can you are you looking at that one at all?
2: Yeah, yeah, in the Actually, you know that it was discovered by, uh, by students and, uh, his teacher on, uh, you know, I think from London. Yeah. UCL, USA. I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Quite impressive. Yeah. So, London has such a, such a good sky after all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> jokes apart. Um, yeah. Um, I, I tried to, to get time and I did succeed in getting time both with the Merlin array and the EVEN um, array. And, uh, one of, them, of the reasons to come here was actually Come here to reduce this data, and uh, well, for reasons that are confidentiality, I will not tell you what the results. But you will follow, follow the GBCA astronomers, uh, Rob Beswick and uh, Megan Argo and Tom Maslow, who are who are my collaborators here, and yeah. and maybe sooner or later we'll see a, you will see
1: a press release. Brilliant, exciting stuff. All right, thanks a lot, Miguel. Thanks a lot, Indy. Thank you.
0: Thanks for that, Indy.
1: And now we come to the part of the show where
0: we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. And Fiona, I think you've got the first one for us.
4: Hi, so my odd and end today is about a meteoroid impact on the surface of the moon. So this was detected by the Moon Impact Detection and Analysis System, or MIDAS. Uh, last September and they've only just published the results there recently and it was interesting uh, well firstly because for anyone lucky enough to be looking in that direction at the time it would have been visible to the naked eye because it was a very large impact and it burned for about eight seconds before fading away and from those eight seconds of illumination the Midas was able to find out a lot of things about it so they were able to proposed two alternative scenarios for what had happened. They said either it was a very small meteoroid which crashed into the moon very fast, or else a somewhat larger meteoroid that crashed into the moon slowly. Um, so in the, the small version of the scenario, it would have been a 45kg rock that measured about 36 centimeters in diameter. Ah uh, and the alternative then was a four hundred and fifty kg rock that measured one point four meters in diameter. Um so that's very interesting because we'd really like to more know more about these kind of things entering the Earth's atmosphere but because they burn up usually on impact, uh, we can't really detect them usually. Um so by looking at the moon we can see how often it happens there and then kind of ex- extrapolate that data um with reference to the Earth. It it made a nice big crater on the surface of the moon that measured forty seven meters in diameter. Ah, uh, so that's pretty cool.
0: Wow. Well, I didn't know about this project, Midas.
4: Today. Um, no, neither did I until until recently. Um, and it's it's very cool what they're doing. They just have two really small telescopes, uh, two small one meter telescopes, pointed at the moon. I think all the time, uh, just recording things and picking things up. I mean. They're the kind of telescopes that that an amateur could go out and buy and and do this themselves if they so if they so pleased. And the reason they have two of them is to make sure that if if one of them is compromised, the other one will continue picking things up, so to make sure that they get an uninterrupted look at what's going on.
0: So this thing was then, for example, a good bit smaller than the meteoroid that exploded over Chelyabinsk in Russia.
4: That's right. I mean, I heard one report that said that one was about the size of a bus, and that still, I mean, it, it it caused chaos, but it didn't actually impact on the surface of the Earth. It burned up before it hit us. So, um, so yeah, this this would have been much smaller than that. Um, so really, they're looking at things that could kind of pose no threat to us, but it's still interesting to know about them.
0: Yeah, well, if you know about how many there are of the smaller ones, I suppose you can start to try and extrapolate to how many of the larger dangerous ones might yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Indy, what have you got?
1: I've got stuff a bit further out than the moon. It's an exciting new data release by the uh, NASA-Kepler mission, whose aim is to look for exoplanets, and it's had quite a bit of success doing that. Uh, NASA recently announced that Kepler has confirmed 715 more exoplanets uh, that are orbiting 305 stars in total, so there's a lot of... Multi-planet, I say, I guess, solar systems that the telescope has discovered. So we've been covering Kepler uh, in in various odds and ends, and our regular listeners will know that the telescope itself has stopped taking data. But these discoveries are all coming from analysis of the the reams and reams of data that have that are already there, stored in hard drives and and waiting to be to be looked at. So with this bunch of planets, 95% of these are smaller than Neptune, but it's a significant increase in the amount of planets that we know. And the analyses have been very effective because the NASA scientists have started to use an analysis known as verification by multiplicity. That's just essentially applying a bit of common sense to, to our knowledge about exoplanets. In all the previous data, scientists picked up on the trend that if you find one exoplanet around a star, it's usually going to be accompanied by a few others. And so by that logic, they've focused on uh, stars that have candidates around them to sort of pay closer attention to them in that way, possibly find more exoplanets. And it succeeded because Kepler has observed around 150,000 stars in total. And as I said earlier, there's only been detections. Well, for this chunk of detections, it's 700 or so planets around 300 stars. So instead of wasting time and assuming that there's an equal probability of detecting a planet around each star, scientists have focused on the best stars that would yield the most amount of planets. Moving on to the planets themselves, uh, four of these 715 planets are less than 2.5 times the size of the F and within the so-called habitable zone of their star, which is to say it's the right distance from the star for water to be present in liquid form, so for the surface temperature not to be above 100 degrees or below um, zero degrees. One of, these, uh, one of these new planets, these habitable zone planets, called uh, Kepler-296f, so that may sound a bit random, but the I think the nomenclature is that the numbers represent the actual stars, and the letters at the end of those represent planets around the stars. So it's planet F of star Kepler-296. So that planet's orbiting a star that's half the size of our sun, and only 5% as bright. The planet itself is twice the size of the Earth, but scientists don't really know if it's a gaseous world, or whether it's a water world uh, surrounded by a, a really deep ocean. And it's, it's difficult to know, uh, with our current instruments, uh, what these planets actually look like because obviously the observations aren't done directly, but it's looking for little dips in the light of a star as the planets pass in front of it. But this latest discovery brings the, the confirmed count of planets, of exoplanets to nearly 1,700. So it's almost double the amount of, well, more or less double the amount of planets that we, that we know of. There's still a lot more capital data to go through, a lot more planet candidates to verify, so hopefully we'll just be seeing more and more of these in the near future. I think that's cool. If Libby was here, she might complain of Earth fatigue like she once did in a
0: previous episode because she said we're finding so many planets and saying, oh, this could be the next Earth that we don't really know enough about them to be sure. But I think another four which are in the habitable zone and roughly Earth-sized is quite exciting. There's not, not that many of those planets around.
4: I think I'd I'd echo Libby's Earth fatigue a little bit there. Say they're finding all these planets, and that's really nice, but I'd love to know what's the next step here, you know? How far away are we from being able to tell a little bit more about these? Like, for example, Indy, you mentioned that they're not really sure is it a gas giant or a water world, and it, it would be really cool if someday we would be able to know a bit more um, about what's going on on the surface of these planets and what they might look like and what they might be like.
1: I mean, for starters, you've got um, the upcoming... Say the upcoming space telescope, the successor to Hubble, the James Webb Space Telescope, that could would have enough sensitivity to at least figure out what's in the atmosphere of the closer exoplanets mm-hmm. using spectroscopy of the uh, of the starlight that passes through the atmosphere on a way. It might be a while until we have a clear picture of the surfaces of the planets. I mean, well, you look at say something like Venus; we barely know knew mm-hmm. what the surface looked like because of all the cloud cover until 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 relatively recently, okay. but. Um, well, there's no substitute for going over there and exploring them ourselves, is there? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be the away. first signing up
4: for that mission, then, <laughs> do you believe? Yeah, <laughs> signing
1: up all your future generations of descendants.
0: <laughs> so eventually, one of them will get there. Pretty much. <laughs> well, there's also the extremely large telescope, which is supposed to come along, um, perhaps in the next decade or so, which is to be, I think, perhaps 30 to 40 meters in diameter, oh, uh, yeah, an Earth, okay. a, a ground-based telescope, and that would. Create. I think it would possibly be able to image exoplanets. I mean, don't know how much surface detail you'd see, but perhaps you'd be getting enough light to do good spectroscopy and really start to see what's in their atmospheres.
4: Yeah, it would be interesting if they could, um, you know, these these uh, telescopes that they're sending off out into space. One, they should, they should have one of those look look back at Earth and see see what Earth looks like from from outer space. A good Um, point. A good test bed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they could maybe look for look for similar signatures out there and see what they're like.
1: Yeah, given that Kepler's the first space telescope that was purpose built to look for exoplanets, I think it's done a pretty good job. And it's a, it's just a numbers game at this point. I mean, the more the more instruments we use to look for these things, the more planets we will find. So yeah. see uh, see what happens.
0: Um, I've got something on our own planet, uh, which is the aurora borealis, the Northern Lights, that were seen. It was actually last night at the time we recording, so it was the 27th of February. In the evening UK time, there was suddenly lots of activity that I saw on Twitter where people suddenly started seeing and taking pictures of the northern lights. Um, so these are uh, caused by charged particles like electrons that come out of the sun and interact with the Earth's atmosphere. But the sun isn't just sort of doing a constant level of activity all the time. It sometimes belches out a big coronal mass ejection, which means lots and lots of charged particles. They're funneled by the Earth's magnetic field towards the poles, north and south, and then they interact with the gases in our atmosphere and produce these amazing colours in the night sky. Um, But in the UK we don't get to see them very often because the best place to be is quite near to the poles of the Earth. And so if you're in Iceland, for example, that's a great place to be. Um, But the Aurora, depending on the strength of the solar wind, can extend down into Scotland England, Ireland, and at times even further, I think. Um, and the exciting thing last night was not only did it happen during our night time, but the sky was clear, which is almost as rare as getting an aurora. <laughs> and um, and it came down all the way, I think, as far as about Norfolk, so um, East Anglia. Uh, certainly there were some amazing pictures from Scotland and also quite a lot from Ireland, so there were some particularly nice ones from Donegal. Sadly, I didn't see it because i was in manchester and the light pollution is too much uh, by the time i realized i thought okay i could drive out to Jodrell bank might get a chance of seeing something but it didn't last that long it was sort of two or three hours and by the time i realized it was already starting to fade away um but these aurora if you have a look at some of the pictures you've got um not only sort of the usual kind of green curtains of light but you've also got higher uh, red illumination as well which is quite unusual um, and it's all caused by different molecules in the atmosphere so Apparently the red is very high up oxygen, and the oxygen is ionised, so it's very energetic. Um, And then a bit lower down, you get blues and greens from nitrogen and slightly cooler oxygen. Um, So you get these distinct different colours, and that's all because these little atoms can only jump certain energy levels. So it's really a quantum thing. You don't get it like a rainbow, you just get these individual colours. So I have kind of just about seen the aurora once in... In Iceland it wasn't that bright, so I'm hoping
1: that we get more flares. Fingers crossed the sun's the sun's at a peak of activity at the moment, so there's there's room for more. There's room for more.
4: <laughs> I saw it once too, actually, but it was very, very faint. It just looked like some red clouds. <laughs> <laughs> Still <laughs> It's
0: a pretty amazing thing to mm-hmm. see. Yeah. And also this it wasn't really predicted very to be very strong. It seems to have been caused by coronal mass ejection that happened on the twenty fifth of February. Um, But at the time, it was reported that this ejection was not really pointing towards the earth. It was pointing quite close to, but not not quite towards the earth. Um, And so, in fact, it was said that it wasn't going to produce, probably wasn't going to produce, very spectacular aurory. And then it did. And this was described as a sideswipe by this flare. So it's a pretty good sideswipe.
1: Yeah.
4: (laughs) Uh, it would be interesting um, to know if there's a connection between the angle that the, the these flares arrive to us at and the intensity of the aurora and, y- you know, where it seemed because this was a sideswipe, like you said, and also it was unusual in that it extended quite down far south. So I wonder if, if the angle it strikes at um, has an effect on that at all. But I think
0: I, quite possibly, yeah. because part of it's to do with the orientation of the magnetic field of the particles as they come along right. with respect to the Earth's magnetic field. So that's why you never quite know until they get there exactly how good they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And I should point out as well that the southern lights were seen um, so the International Space Station has a great picture from one of the astronauts of the southern lights in a, a nice little ring around the south pole of
3: the Earth.
1: It's amazing those pictures because it really lets you visualise what the what something like the magnetic field would look like that's something you wouldn't be able to see at all. Usually, but you get a really good visualization yeah, of, of us, the shapes of things. Yeah,
4: showing us a part of the Earth we don't usually get to see. Yeah, yeah. And now, illuminating
0: our night sky, here's what you can see in the northern hemisphere with Ian Morrison.
3: Well, the night sky for March 2014. Well, what about what we can see in the heavens? Over to the west in the evening. We have the wonderful region of sky, Orion setting low down, Taurus with its lovely open clusters, the Hyades and Pleiades, up to its right. Down to the left will be the star Sirius in Canis Major. Up and to the left of Orion is the constellation of Gemini, with its bright stars Castor and Pollux over to the left of germany is a fairly sparse region of the sky it contains the constellation of cancer the crab but with binoculars if you sweep around the area you should pick up what is called m44 the beehive cluster that's a very nice thing to have a look at moving further over towards the south and the southeast leo will be rising with its bright star regulus there's some very nice galaxies in fact just below the tummy, if you might think about it, of Leo. Several groups there to see, with large binoculars or preferably a telescope. Down to the left of Leo, we have the constellation of Virgo. But not far to the left of the tail of the lion, we have a region, partly in Virgo, partly in Coma Berenices, which is called the Realm of the Galaxies. And in that direction, we're looking towards the Virgo cluster of galaxies, the largest cluster in our immediate neighbourhood, and in fact, it's the heart of the Virgo supercluster. And our own group of galaxies, called the local group, perhaps 50 of them in all, lies at the outer edge of this supercluster. Rising over in the east, a nice bright star, Arcturus in Bootes. And finally, looking upwards, a little bit towards the north, we'll see the plough making part of Ursa Major. Again, a very, very nice constellation. Many interesting objects within it. The two stars on the right-hand side of the plough, Merak and above it, Dubhe, point, in fact, to Polaris, very close to the North Celestial Pole. Well, Jupiter is having a lovely apparition. It's still well placed in the evening sky. Little past its best now, and should be viewed soon after nightfall, when it's closest to the meridian and so highest in the sky, at over 60 degrees elevation. It never really gets any higher than that. Shining at magnitude minus 2.4, you'll see it for much of the evening and the early morning. Jupiter is lying in the constellation of Gemini. Initially it's moving westwards in retrograde motion towards the star Mabsuta, or Epsilon Geminorum. But on March 6th, it resumes its eastward motion across the sky. So as a result, it's actually not moving very much in the sky, so it spends almost the whole month around two degrees below and to the left of Mepsuta. With a small telescope, you can see the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it, and at times be able to pick out the great red spot visible as an indentation to the south equatorial belt. Well, Saturn is now rising around midnight at the start of the month, and about 10.30pm at its end. It's lying in the constellation of Libra, and shining with a magnitude of plus 0.4, which in fact increases to plus 0.3. Again, the disk has a diameter of 17.4 arcseconds, which gradually increases to 18.4. It reaches a stationary point on March 3rd. Well, it begins its retrograde motion across the sky, which is, in fact, because the Earth is sort of moving around the sun on the inside track. The really good news, of course, now, is that the rings are opening out about 23 degrees to the line of sight at present, so we have a magnificent view. With a small telescope, you should be able to spot Cassini's division that lies between the A and B rings. And with a larger telescope, perhaps the anchor gap towards the edge of A ring. Sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so even at opposition, in a few months' time, its elevation will not get that high. Even worse, this will not improve for many years to come. Some reason, in fact, to emigrate to the Southern Hemisphere. Mars is lying in Virgo. It rises about 10pm at the start of the month, about two hours earlier at month's end its brightness increases dramatically during the month, from plus 0.5 to minus 1.3 magnitudes. Again, the angular size also increases from 11.6 to 14.6 arc seconds, as it moves towards opposition on April 8th. So, of course, given good seeing, it's now possible to see markings on its salmon pink surface which is about 91% illuminated at present, such as the polar caps and Sirtis Major. The north polar region is tilted towards us by about 19 degrees, so the north polar cap should be particularly prominent. Mars is lying in Virgo, and at the start of the month is just 6 degrees to the left of Spica, Alpha Virginis. It ends the month 5 degrees up and a little to the left of Spica, in its retrograde motion across the sky. Mercury reaches its greatest elongation west, that is, furthest in angular separation over to the right of the sun on March the 14th. So, of course, it'll be seen before dawn. But sadly, from our northern locations, the ecliptic at this time of year is at such a shallow angle to the horizon, it will still have a very low elevation about half an hour before sunrise. Its disk about seven and a half arc seconds across, which will be 50% illuminated around the 14th of March. It brightens a bit from magnitude plus 0.8 to minus 0.1 during the month. But one has to say it's not really the best month to observe Mercury. Well, I've been spotting Venus in the Eastern sky for a few days now. It actually reaches its greatest elongation west from the sun on March the 22nd. Again, due to the shallow angle of the ecliptic horizon, it does not get that far above the horizon, about 25 degrees elevation on that day of greatest elongation. It's dimming slightly during the month from magnitude minus 4.8 to minus 4.4, whilst its angular diameter shrinks from 32 to 22 arcseconds. But at the same time, the illumination phase increases from 36 to 54%, which is why the brightness doesn't reduce as much as you might expect. Well, what about highlights of the month? Well, we've mentioned Jupiter. It's now well past opposition, but it's still a good month to observe it. Although its angular size falls from 42 to 38 arcseconds during the month, a small telescope can still see lots of details. The features seen in the Jovian atmosphere have been changing quite significantly over the last few years. For a while, in fact, the South Equatorial Belt vanished completely. It's now returned to its normal wide state. On the night sky page, I've included a diagram based on a picture I took way back in December 2012 showing the main features. And also, there's a second highlight that tells you when, in the evening, the great red spot will be facing us and so will be easiest to see. During March, the constellations Cassiopeia and Perseus will be high in the west. If one follows the line of the Milky Way from Cassiopeia over to the left towards Perseus with a pair of binoculars, you should see a little misty patch, which is due to two beautiful open clusters that form what is called the Perseus double cluster. And I promise you, this is a lovely sight in a small telescope, and absolutely fantastic in a bigger one. Now, down to the left of the brightest star in Persis, which is called Murfact, is the star Algol, which has been called the Demon Star, as sometimes it appears to wink. In fact, Algol is what is called an occulting binary, where two stars alternately occult each other so that the brightness drops, and in one case the drop is much greater. Minima of algol may be seen a couple of days during the month of March, and I've given the times and dates on the night sky page. Around the beginning of March, say from the 1st to the 6th, you have a chance to spot Pallas, which is one of the largest of the asteroids, about 550 kilometres across. It's moving northwards through Hydra, but actually briefly for a few days, sneaks into Sexton's and comes back into Hydra. It's pretty close at the beginning of March to the second magnitude star, Alfard in Hydra. It will then be some four degrees over to the left of Alfard during about the 1st to the 6th, shining with a magnitude of 7, so it should be easily visible in binoculars. And a nice thing, if we get a few clear nights consecutively, would be to spot its movement over those few days. Pallas is the second largest minor planet after Ceres in the main asteroid belt. And finally, just three linkings, really, of planets and the Moon. On March the 18th, around 11pm, Mars in Virgo will be seen just less than four degrees to the left of the Moon, which will be two days after full Moon. The moon itself will be only about one degree to the left of the star Spica, Alpha Virginis. That will make a very nice tight grouping to observe with binoculars and possibly quite a nice photo opportunity. A couple of days later, on March the 20th, around midnight, looking southeast, Saturn will be less than about two degrees to the left of the waning moon. And finally... On March the 27th, one hour before dawn, you have a chance to see Venus below a waning crescent moon. It will lie less than three degrees below a nice thin crescent. So they'll both be visible in the same field of view of binoculars and again, another good photo opportunity. So I do hope the sky is clear for a bit after all the clouds we've had during the first couple of months of 2014 and you have a chance to observe the heavens.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. Unfortunately, we don't have a Southern Hemisphere night sky for you this month, but we will be doing our best to get it back to you in April.
1: And now on to the feedback. We don't have any posts in this episode, unfortunately. Uh, we do have an email from Pete Ellinger, who told us he's listening to the Jodcast while creating a set of cards to help him learn the constellations um, so he can identify them better in the night sky. I think that's a very good idea to be honest and to be very honest um quite a few astronomers especially the ones who don't work in with with visible light so radio or any anything else really aren't too familiar with the constellations either so if you make a spare set of cards feel free to send them over to us at the <laughs>
0: <laughs> pdf will do um, print them out. i actually really like these idea of these cards and i think they're probably just as a memory aid but i I thought it would be quite exciting if someone created a sort of constellation's top trumps. Oh. <laughs> I would really that. that. So, would like, brilliant. in my view, you know, Orion would definitely be the top trump.
4: Uh, I, I don't know. I think it would be Ursa Major. Um, I think Ursa Major could probably take on Orion. <laughs> in size, but... <laughs> the dog
1: versus the hunter. Who's going to win? <laughs> it's
4: a, it's a the bear. bear.
1: <laughs> um, listeners, tell us which constellation your favourite is. Answer's on the postcard.
0: On Twitter... Pradeep noticed actually a couple of weeks ago that uh, the volume of the audio in the February episode of the was very variable. Um, So sorry about that. We had actually forgotten to even up the levels, which we usually do. And so we've re-uploaded the audio with this done. So if you're listening to the February Jogcast and it sounds all loud and quiet, uh, just download it over again. Thank you very much for pointing that out. And Colin Stewart said, Listening to the Jogcast for the first time in years, bringing back lots of memories. And that's because Colin featured in some of the early Jogcast videos. So if you go on the archive, scroll back to about 2006 or 2007, uh, there's a video of Colin in the Lovell Telescope, I think, for one of those videos.
4: Russ Jenkins posted to our Facebook page to say, Another great show. There's always something to stretch my imagination around. And um, given the very high winds that we had there recently, Russ was interested to know... Uh, how we prevent the wind from getting uh, to the Lovell telescope. And, Russ, the short answer is actually we don't. Um, So it's exposed to the elements and it, it, it blows right through it and it can actually make quite a loud noise while it's doing that. But it tends not to have too much of an effect when the telescope is in its parked position. The dish doesn't catch the wind, uh, and the support structure is all beams and struts, so it doesn't actually put up too much wind resistance. Um, so that's not overly affected by it either. And it it can withstand some very strong winds. I mean, Mark was telling me about um 80 mile per hour winds around 2007, which posed absolutely no problem to it. And I know, um, we had some trees down there around Jodrell Bank um during the very high winds. Uh, a few weeks ago, and that caused no problems to the Lovell Telescope whatsoever. So uh, hopefully it'll continue to stand strong for another 50 years. Yeah, it's getting towards, what,
0: 57 years old and still standing. uh, Still standing. It's it's pretty exposed there because it's Mm -hmm. on a plane, so the wind can blow across pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. But as long as it's parked, it's fine. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com
1: slash jodcast.
4: On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Jodcast.
0: On YouTube at YouTube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at Flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
4: And don't forget that you can send us posts. Uh, the address is on our website.
0: So that brings us to the end of the episode. And all that's left to say is thank you very much to Miguel Perez-Torres for the interview. The editors were Sally Cooper, Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. So until next time, Jod, Jod on.
4: On.